0: If the COVID virus showed anything, it's the potency of biology threats. Now, the Defense Department recently completed its 2023 Biodefense Posture Review. It deals with many potential threats from the bio domain. Here with the story behind the review, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs, Brandy Van, Dr. Van, good to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, this is labeled 2023. Is this something that the Pentagon does annually among the hundreds of reports it does every year? Or is this something a one of type of thing or an occasional type of thing?
1: Yeah, actually, this was the first ever biodefense posture review. And it was directed by Secretary Austin back in November of 2021. He had a memo that he signed out called the Biodefense Vision Memo. And in that memo, he said that we must prepare to operate in biological threat environments and support the National Biodefense Enterprise both home and abroad. And within that memo, he also dictated the execution of this biodefense posture review, which was laid out as a foundation from the National Defense Strategy and the recently published 2022 National Biodefense Strategy, as well as, of course, lessons that we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic response. Sure. So other reviews of this kind happen on a regular basis. It's yet to be seen whether or not this will be a continuing effort.
0: And does this principally cover how troops themselves will be protected from bio threats in combat or something, God forbid, something happens in Taiwan or whatever? Or is this also how the Defense Department contributes to the, let's say, homeland security, for lack of a better word, defense, should some release or event happen here?
1: Yeah, so first and foremost, it looks at our posture and our readiness and resiliency of our force to operate in a biologically contested environment, no matter the origin, right? So whether that is a deliberate biological weapons attack, a naturally occurring or pandemic disease, or even a laboratory accident, The posture review focuses across that spectrum. Now, it's something to remember that the military has been in conflict operations during every declared pandemic in the last two centuries, right? While they are not biological weapons, they have all challenged operations and our capabilities, whether that's restriction of force flow, design, logistics, or supply. So the BPR really looked at and prioritizes the aim to kind of strengthen and sustain our deterrence operations against these types of threats, while at the same time bolstering the department's resiliency and ability to address current and future threats. So that is everything from understanding what that landscape looks like to clarifying roles and mission spaces across the department looking at our capability development, and then aligning our authorities and our policies, our research and development and our acquisition programs and all of our investments and even our force structure in order to meet the DOD's base requirements there. We also took a strong look at training and exercises and doctrine and tried to align all of those. We did this under four main lines of effort. The first one was really looking at kind of understanding that threat space, whether or not it was enhanced early warning or understanding what biological incidents we might be faced with. We then also looked at our preparedness activities and how we can better prepare to be a resilient total force. Then we looked at how we speed our mitigation activities to try to minimize the impact of biological incidents to DOD missions. And then finally, how do we improve our strategic coordination and collaboration across the enterprise?
0: And when you look at biodefense, it's really not just one thing, because some things you might be able to protect with the latest in gas masks. Other things might take hypodermic injections that you would need in large quantities, and the responses and how you react to a given threat varies as widely as the threats, right? So we're really talking about a sort of multi-dimensional problem here, it sounds like.
1: Yes, it is. It's very multi-dimensional. It's very complex. It is expanding and growing as we speak. And we have really identified that today the DOD and the nation is at a pivotal moment in biological defense and understanding the fact that we face an unprecedented number of complex challenges, right? Again, be they naturally occurring potential for laboratory accidents or naturally occurring or even deliberate attacks. So when we look at this space, You know, we, of course, leveraged the National Biodefense Strategy and the National Defense Strategy to understand what that space looks like. And so the National Defense Strategy really speaks to the growing risk of chemical and biological threats in the context of a strategic competition with near peer competitors and ultimately the potential use of biological weapons or their proliferation by state or non-state actors. Right. And that presents challenges in its own. But we also are seeing increase of laboratory accidents with the rise of the number of labs across the world that are conducting high-risk life science research. And that research has the potential to have pandemic pathogens without effective oversight. So that's concerning, of course. We also look at the potential of existing and emerging biotechnologies and how they can be incorporated into potential biological weapons programs for the purposes that are inconsistent with the Biological Weapons Convention. And then at the end, we also are looking at naturally occurring disease. So climate change is really impacting the permafrost layers and we're seeing the potential of freeing of novel or long dormant pathogens. And then, of course, as we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic, the infectious disease outbreaks could spread rapidly across continents and oceans and affect our ability to be postured.
0: Yeah, I think malaria has been spotted in a couple of places in the United States. We thought we had that one licked, you know, decades ago. We're speaking with Dr. Brandy Vann. She's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs. And Did you discover some major gaps in readiness that you might not have been aware of without undertaking this review?
1: We uncovered a number of elements that we realized that we needed to put uh, emphasized effort against. And that is both from a research and development, but really from an organizational and alignment and coordination of efforts across the biodefense enterprise here within the Department of Defense, but also how we work broadly outside of just the DOD for the broader national biodefense enterprise as well.
0: Right. So that was my next question. Did this review involve some of the domestic or civilian agencies that are concerned with this? I mean... HHS, Homeland Security, and a couple of other departments have a piece of biodefense anyway outside of the defense domain.
1: Yeah. So the, the biodefense posture review itself was collaborative effort internal to the Department of Defense primarily, right? So we had components from across the DOD and our entities, whether they were defense agencies or OSD components, joint staff, so on and so forth, And we looked at the distinct roles and authorities that they had in playing within the biodefense realm. But while we were focused primarily on our internal review, we actually focused a lot of consultation with external stakeholders, including industry partners and academia and global biodefense and health security experts. So we also complemented that with some collaboration with our interagency. So even though the BPR itself was internally focused, the department plays a huge role in the National Biodefense Strategy Implementation Plan. Under the guidance of the National Security Council, we work with our interagency partners, as you mentioned, to really anchor our strategy in a holistic federal response.
0: And earlier, you mentioned that every time there's been some kind of pandemic, the U.S. military has been at work somewhere in the world. We learned early on in the pandemic, I think it was as early as 2020, late 2020, maybe early 2021, I can't remember, but we had some battleships that were crippled by the amount of COVID infection that had occurred aboard. And it was, I think, kind of a wake-up call that these things are not just potentials. Did that event in the Navy inform some of the thinking here?
1: Absolutely. So the Teddy Roosevelt incident uh, and the fact that they had to stay for a long time in Guam and restrict their movement absolutely played a factor in this. Though I will say while COVID did highlight a number of opportunities for us to kind of change or improve the way that we were responding to threats, This is not just about the pandemics and and about COVID. This is truly looking, again, across that spectrum of potential threat agents.
0: All right. And so what happens next? Their review is done, and now there are some operational changes that probably have to happen or maybe some acquisitions that could result.
1: Yeah, so there are a number of research and development capability development efforts that are underway now because of the biodefense posture review. In addition to that, we are increasing our support and our reviews of how we are effectively doing training and exercising within the department. But one of the major reform efforts that we came up with in the biodefense review was the establishment of a new governance structure for biodefense. The reason behind that was the BPR's analysis found that the biodefense enterprise was great, but it could really improve the unity of effort to strengthen our integration mechanisms for both situational awareness as well as prioritization of readiness and preparedness activities to try to maximize the efforts within the department.
0: And that sounds like that could be, in some ways, a whole-of-government effort also,
1: Yeah. So, again, the council itself was tasked to us through the deputy secretary and the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to try to serve as the principal forum to advise them on biodefense issues and try to synchronize and integrate the authorities and responsibilities across the department into a singular body. Part of that body is absolutely going to be facilitating information flow in and outside of the department and across the department, most importantly. And that council is going to have representatives from across OSD and the joint staff and even within the combatant commands and services that are executing this and having to be aware of those types of issues on a daily basis.
0: And a final question: Is there any particular threats that the review staff thought this is something new and emerging? What should we worry about? I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I get this question a lot: Is what what keeps you up at night? So I think that the thing that we recognize in the biodefense review. Was that the again, the complexity of the threats and the sheer number of threats that we potentially face in the department and as a nation for national security is so large that it takes us actually re-looking at how we structure our preparedness and response activities. And again, our goal in the biodefense posture review and now in the council and the department is to ensure that the reforms that we are going to be laying out over the next few years will provide our force the resilience and the response capabilities to effectively operate no matter the origin of the incident and no matter where that incident occurs.
0: Who knows? The most potent weapon might not be the next generation of combat rifle, but just simply coughing on the enemy.
1: That's right. It could be.
0: Dr. Brandy Vann is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. This was great.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to the biodefense posture at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure to be
2: you first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility, both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair, with dignity and respect on the job, and I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry as I've grown through the four decades of leading people.
2: Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know, that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events. Widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership
3: style? You know, that gets me excited. Okay. To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor. Uh, running, if you will, and it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division, they are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South, I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I, I gotta quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God, and that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in, uh, the Bible and with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right, treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It is it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me, uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have
2: multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. and it's, it's easy. Yes. Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career?
3: You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm going to have to elaborate on two, if that's okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, And it's membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today. That's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before. Mm -hmm. um, Is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you... Might even think back on today.
3: It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right? As I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot, you know. My, I had twelve siblings, and so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be sixteen years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray and she taught me about faith and it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today suppose i've been dead 50 years ago but i'm 66 years old now and it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life and i believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt
2: amazing story thank you for sharing all of it with us Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today
3: that's just mine
2: And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership.
0: Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.